Okay, universe. <clears throat> How you been? Uh, had a had to reset my audio settings for my new MP3 recording. This uh, this situation was necessitated by my one of my Samsung Galaxy Fours finally gave out Samsung Galaxy S4. I have two of them. I also have an S3 and an S2, but um, <clears throat> The S4 still work, but I cracked the face of an S of one of them six months ago, and uh, finally the little uh, metal retaining piece that sits in the corner gave way, and the so the screen's no longer functional. So I'm down to one phone, and uh, with the way I treat phones, that means that I am only one stupid move away from having no phone. And if that happens, well, that's going to put a dent in my recording routine. So I'm going to try to protect the phone. Um, and I'm also going to uh, hopefully uh, say that I have at least improved the recording quality. Because after putting my mind to a problem I should have solved 80 episodes ago, I found uh, a solution I think will work. And I apologize for all of the terrible recording efforts I put forward in my earlier attempts to be better because in many cases I thought I had something worked out by the time I listened to the recording to find out I had done things so poorly it was audio I couldn't afford not to um, integrate so uh, lessons learned like I said you do not need to go through all this I wouldn't and uh, I don't know how I will somehow collate the uh, content that exists now for some of the better elements. I have no idea how I'm going to do that. But I'm certainly going to do it because I realized after the fact how inaccessible I had made this whole project. Because I had assumed that I could just convince the world to do podcasts like I do. 117 episodes at a time, which of course you can't. Why I didn't think that through, I don't know, but it is a fundamental flaw that I see now in my entire delivery uh, to the point that I'm trying to conceive of some more mm, uh, modular uh, approach for the fourth episode um, or the fourth volume after I get through all the work stuff here. And um, I think the fourth volume will be uh, the, the, the confluence of um, losing faith in uh, the knowledge I had been given or earned or however you want to uh, quantify the academic achievement of, of pursuing higher knowledge. When those cracks started to develop and then what the alternative theories uh, for filling in those cracks became. Well, those that's the material I really think I'll get to in part four, although that may take until part five to really get to that stuff. So I still don't really know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something that will be more, um, be more listenable from a drop-in and spend 22 minutes just seeing what's going on over here kind of way and I never minded buzzing around a cocktail party or just uh, a party full of interesting conversations where I would eavesdrop in for 9 to 11 minutes 9 11 no <clears throat> don't know where that came from before really getting a feel for what's going on and then have something to contribute well and I know I do like to give myself these serious accolades of how interesting it is to talk to myself for all this time, but I do not want to just put down elements that I don't even want to re-listen re to, and I think I'm getting some repetition. I know I'm getting some mistakes. As a matter of fact, one of the other things I plan on doing is as I re-listen to the previous episode is to correct the mistakes I make clearly in the next episode rather than waiting until the 10th episode 
for instance, I'm hearing myself say less when I mean fewer and vice versa. And uh, so that needs to be corrected. And the simple rule there is you have less uh, time off next year because the company decided to give you fewer days off. So anything less you're quantifying generally, like you have less anger, you have less um, uh, education, but you have less education because you took fewer classes or you, or, uh, you have fewer degrees. And so when I say less and I mean fewer and I say fewer and I mean less and I know the rule, well, I get a little irritated. So I am going to use these review sessions of the immediate episode before to give myself some, um, some pointers on sloppy delivery. Now, grammar, I'm going to let slide. I will just try to get better at grammar over time. But breaking the simple rules of structural language and proper organization of words as they are to be used, well, I'm going to do my best to, to get back on track there. Okay, I also need to get back on track with an apology. And I'm going to apologize here. I'm not sure that I feel that's one that one is due, but in my forgiving nature, I'm going to apologize for failing to recognize um, the achievements that the United States of America, in fact, have in their chest of medals. Um, and I'm going to generously give them the two achievements that are the technical achievement of the space race victory and I will give them the um, the world um, beacon of the concept of individual opportunity to dream great dreams and achieve them. America has represented both of those things for the world and has worn those um, badges with honor. Now, I am selectively not including that we won World War II because I don't believe we did. As a matter of fact, I don't believe there were anything but losers in World War II. Everybody lost. Um, we lost the least in many ways. Um, especially given some of the losses that countries like Poland, Russia, China, Japan, Yugoslavia. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving some undeserved names off the top of that list. But every country from Romania to... Um, to um, India to, hmm, I want to say Egypt. I mean, if you go look at the number of countries that lost twice, three times, four times as many of their citizens as, and soldiers, I mean, Russia lost eight to 10 million soldiers and 13 to 15 million civilians. We lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 420,000 total casualties, 418,000 of which were soldiers. So, did the bomb win World War II, or did it just end the fighting before we really had to lose anywhere near what a country like Poland, who lost six million citizens. You know how big Poland is? So I'm not trying to dismiss our role in swaying the final um, the final military might against what were the forces of the Axis powers, both 
sides of the globe. But I don't underestimate what the whole world lost in a contribution to basically stop each other from finally taking it to the to the ultimate conclusion of wiping humanity off the planet. There were enough personalities in World War II ready to do it and just enough tension maintained to keep it from happening. So are we a big part of that? Well, we didn't get involved very... I'll just say that we had a, a convenient geographical position that we have maintained since. We are lucky to be a waterlocked country with Mexico, Canada, and not much else to deal with compared to, say, the 2,000 years of tension and cross-boundary running amok that Europe has experienced as nations dividing up a land smaller than this country itself. So I just see a whole bunch of different experiences of which I feel like ours was one of the better timed and organized uh, I don't like talking about these things because I hate the entire enterprise of war. I hate that we used the nuclear weapon. I hate that we became the country that had to be coerced into taking action on a world stage. Uh, and then we took credit for winning that battle. Well, if it was that important, why weren't we involved from the get-go? And I, I hate how much this country and the capitalist engine behind it took advantage of the entire munitions development of World War II to make a ton of money, both financial institutions and industrial um, uh, conglomerates came out of World War II way ahead. And I'm not talking about just Henry Ford and some of the big players. I'm talking about the entire industry that, that funded the war effort. It was financed by this country. So it's a, it's a terrible scenario. And every country is going to tell their citizens the best possible version of the story where the enemy was conquered, they stood the moral high ground and are rebuilding from the rubble that the world now lives in. We're all getting the same story. Not all of those stories are true, or maybe they all are. But to, for me to think that we can claim victory in World War II... Well, okay, I'll say I give you that. Then what's our track record since? Well, we didn't win Korea. We didn't win Vietnam. We didn't win Iraq. We didn't win Afghanistan. So, I don't know. It seems like a big, it seems like the only person who's ever told us the truth about war is that, uh, that general, um, I'm not going to... Smedley Butler? Is that his name? The guy who uh, undid the the coup, the plot to take down... I believe it was... It was uh, I shouldn't talk about stuff. As a matter of fact, here. New rule. <clears throat> I don't like how I was spitting out facts about lottery winners, which actually turned out not even to be uh, harsh enough. Lottery winners go... <laughs> oh, God. Five years. Five years. 70% are bankrupt within the first five to nine years. And uh, what was 14% are bankrupt in the first year? It's, it's ludicrous. They're just, they are nothing but pray for the wicked. 
Um, and and it, it's, I, it was so sad I didn't even want to go any further with it. I also tried to narrow down some felony stats. Those are hard to find because there's, first of all, a whole lot of flux because people are in different variations of probation and, um, and consequence. So while you may be currently sitting on probation... If you don't continue that probation, you've got a felony over your head that will then be enacted. So there's, there is some, some bookkeeping stuff that's legitimately sticky. And there's also a whole lot of not uh, available data. And state by state, it's different stuff. Now, there are some interesting state studies, like the state of Florida did a study because they have the most restrictive felony um, voting rights. So you have to basically petition the state to get your voting rights back as a, as a convicted felon. So they have a lot more data in terms of what their state has been through. But they have a state data bank that, um, I believe it was 2016 that they did their data. There's a whole bunch of data from 2010. And then some state data from like 13 and 16. And I think Florida's was from 16. And they were showing their, their adult population at 20% plus felony records. One in five. And I think it was 40% of the black male population had felony records. And if you take the 18-year-olds out of the population, 18 and under, which you should, um, well, I know for the 350 million of us, the 18 and under population is roughly 75. So they are uh, 20% of the, of the population. So if, if 20% of the population, and, and everybody 65 and older really should be taken out because they're not out there creating havoc. The ones that are are well-known. So here you have this chunk. Really what you're looking at is you want to look at the people from 18 to 40. The ones who the felony record screws their life. Okay, It's those 22 years in which it makes a huge difference. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter if you're my age and you get a felony. Yeah, of course it matters. But my production potential at 52 is considerably less than somebody at 26. And so stunting my uh, future contribution is nowhere near as crippling to the overall group as taking away the potential output of a 26-year-old because he was caught with four ounces of marijuana. Those are the kinds of crimes that, while we may want to take a stance against mind-altering um, chemical uh, substance ingestion, do we want to put those people out of the system for good and make them literally have to fend off homelessness and despair as a result of that activity? Uh, I'm not trying to say... I don't want these things to be decided by society, <clears throat> but I can tell you that most of the people who I've known who had drug problems were very kind, very self-loathing, and very unsure of anything at all because they just felt like they had done everything wrong. I didn't find them to be... I didn't find them to be the kind of people that you were worried about having on the block. They're not, they're not the menace at all. In fact, I think they're the scapegoat, but hang on. Let me, let me think about that for a second. Cause I got some other apologies to make here. Hmm. Uh Oh, kitty. All right, back on track. So I don't mean to dismiss America, the nation as a, as a, um, Kitty, do not step there. I do not mean to create a, a point of division because I am not uh, seen as nationally uh, committed or as patriotically inclined as the next person. I stood and said the Pledge of Allegiance for... Did we do that in high school? Well, we did it all the way through junior high for sure. Huh. I don't know if we did it in high school. It seems like we didn't. But out of nine years of indoctrination from kindergarten until eighth grade, I learned the Pledge of Allegiance. 
As a matter of fact, I think allegiance was probably the biggest word I knew until at least second, maybe third grade. I mean, allegiance was a tricky word because it had so much vowel weirdness in it as opposed to cat. But yeah, allegiance is probably, those are the kinds of words that, that, um, that would always make me feel like I had to know I, I couldn't pledge allegiance without being able to spell all the words, right? Like, if you were going to make me say the Pledge of Allegiance, well, I was going to be able to spell Pledge Allegiance. I was going to be able to spell, um, uh, I guess I can spell the rest of the words in the Pledge of Allegiance, but it was it was the kind of thing that I just wasn't going to not understand like i would i would be late to dinner because i would be writing out how to spell allegiance in my bedroom having been forced to learn the pledge of allegiance in first grade or whatever and and it, it so these kinds of these kinds of um of unknowns have always sat poorly with me there's no reason for me not to know how to spell allegiance if you're going to make me pledge it to a flag then I'm going to I'm going to at least know the word and what it means and how to spell it so that um, now that it's a part of my life it's fully integrated in a capacity <laughs> in a standard whereby I think I can say okay I understand that I understand what I'm pledging so when I think of my issues with America and the idea of being a citizen, and I am 100% an American citizen. This is not denying my citizenship. I'm saying that that puts a responsibility on me. I am now the caretaker of the policies whereby our government and the agents working therein engage the world. We are now a global civilization. There is no more pretending I don't know what's going on in Morocco because I can click a button and find out. So the only informed uh, citizen left to embrace this reality is one who is informed globally. And from where I sit, what it looks like we have used our foreign policy levers to enact in a both overt and covert strategic um, assemblage is nonstop disruption and volatility that leads to the sort of escalation that allows us to sell weaponry or to come in with weaponry, train soldiers to help suppress said insurrections, and then police state that shit till we can drain the resources as much as we want. Is that unfair? Sure. Is it a little fair? Yes. And I, uh... I didn't fall onto planet Earth and agree to these lines on the map, but they're here. Uh, so what is happening in Mexico versus what is happening in America are two completely different things separated by literally the distance I can spit a loogie. So the absurdity of it, if it doesn't ring at least a little true with every single person who has ever gone looking for the actual line on the map that it is separating Mexico from the United States and no rivers don't count. I have never been able to walk that line between New Mexico and Colorado that divides one state from the other. And 
does this mean I don't understand region, territoriality, peoples of cultures? Do we all need to be the same? Are we all just one Charlie Brown? Nobody gets to bring a blanket. Linus, you're not welcome. No, no, but we can't cloak ourselves in the blanket of nationality as an excuse to abuse anybody. And unfortunately, I think we've been a little bit more of that in this last 50 years than if I were to have um, been a formative part of the American uh, policy in world relations, well, I would have been less pleased with the things I found out because I just didn't look, so assumed we were doing things the way I would do them. Uh, it's not exactly what was happening. So, my fault. This is why things are my fault. I wasn't paying attention, so we went and did things like took over the heroin world drug trade, unless we already had it and we were just securing our resources. And again, look, CIA, I get it. I get it, man. I get it. Hey, at least you were doing business outside of, you know, the Americas. And what else are you guys out there doing? You're running... You're running the underbelly of the world. You're controlling that which, when it's not controlled, is the darkest nut of human ingenuity that needs to be cracked. But if you just embrace it, if you just say, well, the drugs are going to run, so we can either play cops and robbers, or we can just play Dons and... And, and mafiosos. I, I mean, I, the logic is there. It's not like, I don't get it. But at some point, enough, right? Let's, if drugs are such a, a popular thing, let's just bring them above board. Enough with the chicanery. It's time for adults to have adult discussions about what we like to do with our brains. And if heroin is too tricky to manage, well, then it stays in some sort of, I don't know. I don't have answers for this stuff. But I know having the country run black ops programs that are bringing in the kind of money that then fund other nefarious programs to do things that nobody knows what's going on because there is no accountability because eventually the structure itself is so cumbersome that anybody who wants to do anything can hide their motivations in a way that they can do the most dastardly things possible. I'm not even worried about the schemers, the tacticians, and the ones who just were smart enough to see, hey, if I'm going to play the game, you don't, you don't test your skill as a Texas Hold'em player in the middle of Iowa. You go to Vegas. And you don't go to Vegas with the idea that you're not going to do whatever it takes to come out on top. So the CIA is full of a bunch of guys that are just smarter than the room. They know it. I'm just saying that that shouldn't have been the cue you followed to let your life develop and become the foundation of everything that you're now essentially built for. That's just a I don't care how smart you are. It's a crappy way to live. It's like trying to live making your money fixing games. Yeah, you're outsmarting the whole experience, but it's it's a lot of work. Why Why do we need to have an entire system built that those kinds of those kinds of outcomes are even? optimal <clears throat> is is the life in the cia all that great i doubt it because a world that enables a cia that has the sort of authority and frankly <laughs> tentacle structure that ours does <laughs> i can't i can't even 
conceive of the level of spookiness that must go on between the the people that work there. <laughs> it must be the the least trusting staff of of uh, of legitimate opponents that oh I mean I'm trying to think of where you walk in a room and there's 1400 people all of whom could potentially be there to stab you in the back it's like murder by death but a whole town full of people not just a mansion full but and 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 listen, maybe that maybe that is what life is for, is to just play the game at the highest possible level, come out on top, be the ultimate spook, the ultimate sneaker, the ultimate diabolical master of tacti tactics. To outthink everybody. But it does leave you all by yourself. Being the smartest one in the room eventually is a room of one. Okay. I said I was going to talk about uh, one work and one thing on the list. So the thing on the list is not being an America basher. I don't mean to be. I do mean to be an America uh, citizen who wants to believe that we have gifts in this country in terms of both reputation, prestige, and um, overall um, placement to do good. I think we are a force of, um, of self-interest at this point, more than we are a force of uh, uplifting and empowerment for the world at large. I'm not saying those initiatives don't exist. What I'm saying is, I don't know that we have had a strong enough voice saying, how can we, as the richest, most advantaged nation on the planet, make sure that we are doing what we need to do to enable other sectors of the world to have the same advantages in the most supportive role we can afford. We also have problems at home. I'm trying to pretend we don't. But if I'm going to be a fully committed citizen of the United States, if that's a line on the map I have to live with, well then I'm going to say I want to be proud of how we are acting domestically, how we are acting on the global stage, and how we are acting uh, in terms of our responsibility to a better future for everybody. And I don't see why we wouldn't all want that. And, okay. So, when I America bash, I do have reasons. I don't come to this party without having thought we've earned a little of that. I don't like our incarceration rate. I think it's way too high, especially compared to every other country on the planet. So, again... Uh, pick anybody to compare us to. I think we are worse. Uh, I do not like our uh, treatment of uh, the media. I think we uh, let money influence our politics too much. I don't think we are funding necessary civilization support um, uh, institutions like education number one, um, uh, food, shelter, and what other medical needs for the poor. I am a big believer that we should not be deteriorating our support um, and welfare systems. And welfare is a loaded word. I don't even mean that. These are demeaning things to make people feel bad. They shouldn't. We are plenty far along enough and plenty advanced enough and we have souls that are deep enough and feel enough to think benevolently enough to say it sure should be a goal that a human being on planet Earth gets the gift of food, shelter, energy, and water and medical care 
until that is set up for everybody, I think we have work to do. So, as America, um, with all of the economic advantages that come built into this country, well, um, I'm going to try to figure out a way to become more lucrative so that I can start some of those initiatives and maybe make that impact instead of uh, the, the walls we seem to want to build lately. I think it's time to start shaking more hands and asking how we can help. But we got to do that at home too. This is probably more work than I'll get done in a lifetime. But those are my thoughts on America. And I don't mean to bash my country. I mean to love my country, which means when my country is coming home drunk and uh, with their shirt inside out more often than I'd like to see them do, well, I'm going to ask them if they don't mind having a cup of coffee this morning and talking about all these issues. I don't think I have answers. I don't even know if I have the right questions. But I know I don't sit here with haphazard reactionary thoughts. I sit here with considered, measured ideas about how this world can be better and how it broke. <clears throat> so, this is supposed to be my hero episode, and I might as well uh, move on to that last here. And this is a story I've told before, probably three times, four times, because it really is a great memory for me. And when I speak of wanting to work in a in some sort of um, environment that is cooperative and is filled with the sort of camaraderie that um, makes you not have to ask what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're getting it done. You just know that you're you're already there. Where you, it's the work is it's fulfilling and and um, and engulfing and it like nothing else can be so this this is what i imagine uh the service uh is like or working as a as any any uh police officer fire uh um uh, rescue worker uh, anything that has that level of intensity and commitment on the job and forces you into those positions of there is no gap between what you're doing in the job. You just are reacting. It, 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 is, <clears throat> it is the kind of work that um, the wilderness school got for 15 days a year. Because for 15 days a year, there was a program called Upward Bound, which was modeled after Outward Bound, but Upward Bound was designed to take juvenile offenders. And these were the risky juvenile offenders. These were some hardcore kids. They were, they were not kids even, especially the 16-year-olds. They were in a program where they had, they had all done something violent. Um, they, had, they, they were committed offenders for violent crimes as juveniles. And this was part of their rehabilitation is they had to go through this program. And some of them had to do it twice. So we had some double up kids, um, which was both good and bad. But um, you would get, there were 14, 15, and 16-year-olds that would come up. And they would come up for 15 days. They actually came up on a bus, on a, on a juvenile, it was like a white school bus. They came up from New Jersey to Connecticut. And the idea was that they had no idea what the wilderness was like. So they would bring these kids out to the rural Connecticut and um, force them into an environment in which you could challenge their basic core beliefs. And they, none of them wanted to be there. It was, it was the kind of uh, experience that they fought tooth and nail the whole time. And to the point that they would pull one of... One of the years that I worked it, and I, I worked the support staff two years and was called in to be an instructor the third year in a 
in a way that uh, one of the other instructors got hurt. So literally got pulled in because there was nobody else to do it. So I had very little experience working with these kids one-on-one, except for this seven-day period, the second half of the third year I was there. What I did instead was drive the canoes around, work the ropes course, um, shuttle food back and forth, all of that stuff. Me and three other guys, well, me and two other guys, there was a staff of three of us doing that. And then each of the group of kids had a staff of three. And there was seven or eight kids in each group. So it was two, no more than, there were three or fewer kids to an instructor. And the instructors were never supposed to be they had to always be at least two at a time alert and with the kids. So never could two even be asleep. One would sleep, then another would sleep, then another would sleep. So there were always two alert. And, um, I mean, it was, it, and, and kids would bring knives and all sorts of stuff. I don't think we ever found a gun, but knives every time. And some kids just had, I mean, drugs aplenty. Um, and you had to, thoroughly search all their luggage and all their, um, everything that they had. And we walked them down. They had to bathe in the Creek. That was like the first thing they did was pack their pack and get their, their camp gear ready to go. And, um, and so this third year, there's always two or three kids in the group that just don't belong there. They're not tough. They're just stupid. And they've done whatever they've done. So they're, they're, you know, they're part of the program. They're, there's no getting out of it. But they're just, you know, they, you can tell they're, they're the fish that swam in the wrong river. And, and, and this year, there were two of them that stood out. And for two different, re- for different reasons. And, um, and I ended up in a group with one of them. And he was, he, he was Vietnamese. He spoke no English. Well, he spoke a little English. He understood a lot more than he could speak. Um, and he was tiny. He was, I don't know, four foot, 11, 95, hundred pounds. He was tiny. And, uh, and he was 15. And one of the things that, that, um, that happened in the group is they, they would immediately, uh, it, the hardest thing to do is to keep them from fighting each other, uh, and fighting each other in a way that was brutal there. It was, it was a constant high alert, nervous experience to be around these kids because they were ready to do anything to just fuck things up. And so trying to get these kids to learn to build campfires and to canoe and to jump across a ropes course while you had opportunities to connect with them eventually it was a it was a battle of wills till they got back on the bus um but there were some neat things built into the program um there was a progression of 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 challenge in the wilderness they did rock climbing they did whitewater canoeing i mean there was legitimate immersion in wilderness activity There was soloing, there was, they did orienteering, so they learned how to read maps, did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, And they did, there was, uh, depending on which route you ended up of the three groups, you were hiking somewhere between 18 and 27 miles um, over the course of the two-week program. So there was some exercise involved. And we always saw kids, or kids, they were kids. We always saw them get in better shape, except the ones who showed up cut like Adonis. But there were, you know, there were always the chubby ones or the the ones who who were just going to have a tough time. And this Vietnamese kid who spoke no English was the smallest kid there, including all the women, the girls. These were girls, um, and just had that demeanor that he was going to get picked on. Well, this was the group that the, the instructor got hurt in. So by the time I get shuffled in on like day six, and I had already worked the ropes course with the, the, they, they were the first ones to go through the, like the core activities at the camp. So they had, so I knew them 
that's one of the reasons I, I got picked over there um, because I had worked with them for four days already. So I only missed two of the days they were doing stuff. So when I came in, I knew the Vietnamese kid had two things working against him. Uh, and well, he may have had more because I may have already said that, but he showed up in sandals. You're supposed to, we, there's a list of stuff you're supposed to bring, but we always expect kids not to have the stuff that is on the list. Um, at least some of it, like we give them a list so that they show up with not nothing, but nobody has any boots that can fit this kid. I mean, nothing. And, uh, the closest we have are way too big for him, but he has, he can't wear sandals. So there's nothing we can do. He's got he's to gotta deal with wearing shoes that are three sizes too big. So we just give him tons of socks, which is terrible because he's going to get his feet wet. So his feet are going to get blist. I mean, it's an all-around bad situation to not have something at least comfortable enough that he can lace them up and not flop around like a clown, which is what he's doing. And even on the high ropes course, we let him wear the sandals because they're more secure. We don't want him in clumsy footwear, you know, 25 feet off the ground. So, but hiking, <laughs> uh, there's a rule in the wilderness school that whoever is the slowest walker leads the group. Nobody goes faster than the person slowest in the group. Well, three days into it, we finally have to, as a group, come to a vote that we're going to have myself hold back with, and his name was Tran, his last name was Tran, uh, I don't remember now, but it, I'm, I essentially end up walking the second week with this kid full of blistery, horrible ankles. I mean, they just looked awful and they were getting worse every day. I'm, I'm walking with this kid in last place. We're, we're way behind the group. He can barely move. And, uh, and we start having this conversation, you know, in as much broken English as he can, because finally when he's separated from the group, not threatened, he kind of opens up a little bit. And... You know, he moved into a neighborhood where um, he had they, his. He's come to America just two or three years before this. Uh, this so he's he came over here after elementary school, and in the three years he's been here, he's got now two felonies that include uh, apparently attempted murder. Um, you know, and it's just like. He, uh, he he's and, and and his two cousins are the other are were also involved so it just sounds like a kid who came over here to be a part of you know american family and he ends up having two cousins involved in some drug deal in in new jersey and, and now he's screwed i mean and he's clomping around in the middle of connecticut in these stanley work boots that are just ah, they're depressing you know and at some point um I just feel like the world is so chaotic that I can be this bounce around counselor who's doing my summer job, who's getting uh, my uh, work uh, study compensation government assistance grant that comes with doing a work study qualification position, which this happens to be one. So I'm going to get paid 2,500 bucks or something toward my education for walking around in the wilderness with this kid who has, who faces a life of two felony convictions before he can drive. And, uh, and when, when, when one of the things that you, that you have to do before the whole um, program when the kids are, are, are before they get there is we get a, a, a hold of a guardian for all of them to arrange them to be there for the final day of the program. Um, so that after all of this, uh, this, uh, separation from what they know into a wilderness full of bugs and, and bottles of water and peeing on, on uh, you know leaves that are trickling downhill into their feet, after every 
obstacle they overcome. Well, the last day is a marathon. We make them run, I think it was four and a half or six miles or something. And, uh, and so when we send them off, in the hour and a half they're gone, their parents show up. We start up a barbecue, and when they come running up the hill, there's a parent or a guardian or somebody waiting there to say congratulations way to make it through the program it's you know it's it's a it's a moment of accomplishment and we want somebody there to share it with them well nobody could get through to this kid's parents because we didn't have anybody who could in, who could speak vietnamese and so nobody the, this kid is going to be the first kid, and I've done this three years now, and, and this is always just an amazing moment when these kids reunite with somebody they know after all of the, the, the distance they feel from anything familiar that they've been through. The, it really does turn the program into, a, into a, a fine conclusion when everybody gets to walk around having a cheeseburger with a smile on their face. But we've never had anybody not have somebody there and I know this is the first year that it nobody there's nothing we can do like the, there's no way to tell these parents what what we're trying to do for them um, well the woman who hurt herself felt so bad about it that she drove down to New Jersey knocked on the door of these parents of this kid's parents and said, here's what's happening with your son. And drove him all the way back up to Connecticut in their car. <laughs> um, because they didn't want to not have their car. Um, and, and I remember thinking, and, and anyway, and he runs off in his boots. And, and at this point, his feet are so bad, it's just, it's terrible. And he, he's there I don't know, 20 of them that, that finished the race. And he's the last one to come up. And he's way behind. He's 15 minutes behind the, the second to last finisher. And finally, you can see him coming. And, and I had kind of prepared him that we hadn't been able to get... I had told him that his parents weren't going to be there. And I didn't know they were going to be there. Because it wasn't until two days before. And I was out doing the solos. So I did not know until the freaking barbecue and I met them. And I didn't know the whole story. I was finding it out as he was running up the hill. Well, he comes up the hill and all the other kids are like cheering him on. And I just remember thinking, because he had taken a lot of abuse from all of them. And, uh, and it, Hang on. It wasn't enough to matter. You could just see him like put his head, uh, put his head down. Like, you know, sure. Now cheer me on. But what would happen is he would come winding out of this wooded part to this grassy field. And then once you cross the field, it was a, a hill climb up to the corral. And, and that was the finish line. So when all of the other kids saw him come out of the woods, you could tell that his, his boots were untied. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know how he had him on, but, um, he, you know, he's, uh, he's fighting just to finish. And, uh, and when he gets to the hill, it's the first time he looks up and sees all of us. And, he sees his parents and after two weeks of seeing this kid 
beaten down by everything life had to beat him down with. To watch him look up the hill and see his parents. <sighs> he literally ran out of his boots and he ran all the way up the hill and he jumped into his mom's arms and she was bigger than, than he was but she was tiny and it was just like it's like <sighs> here's a kid who probably for whatever language barrier geography relocation uphill climb life has given him well you can see that everything that was going to happen next to him was unfair. And at least for one afternoon, I got to see him at his best. And then I just think, all right, you know, I got to have that experience three different years, and it was powerful. But it just reminded me that instead of this being the norm, this is the one day that everything lines up the way it's supposed to. Why are we a society that's built on making those kids run out of their boots, show the kind of effort that involves overcoming every obstacle we can throw at them just to have one afternoon of thinking they're worth a shit? Working at that wilderness school was the most rewarding thing I ever did. For obvious reasons, but for a lot of other reasons, too. And it's funny, because it was just a summer job while I was in college. But it was never just a summer job. It was the last job I ever felt was so a part of me. That I had to leave it better than I started it. Year after year, it mattered. And all I want, if we're going to work that hard in this country, that we have to sometimes just put our head down and not listen to the noise around us telling us anything other than you'll get through today just fine. Well, all I want is some respect on that journey. I never once showed anybody disrespect and that they weren't capable of something great because you, you just never know who's literally ready to run out of their shoes and jump into something spectacular. If you keep thinking you know who's going to do what, you're going to miss out on a whole lot of people doing something you never thought was possible. And I believe so much in what the human experience is capable of. Everything I think we can do is because I believe so much in all of you. And just like Mr. Tran and his go-go boots from hell... Well, he's my hero. And whenever I started thinking about heroes, I thought, I don't even have any heroes. And then I started realizing about who I thought back on the most in life when I wanted to remember what it meant to feel inspired by those around me. And I will never, ever forget how inspired I felt watching that kid come up that hill with the energy and reward of having done it.
I've never seen somebody have to work so hard to get through it. And I've never seen it mean so much to somebody. And I've always remembered how deep we can reach. All of us. I'm just amazed. I am amazed at human beings. I think I always will be.